Welcome to First Baptist Church. You're listening to the preaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead. Please check us out on the internet at fbcboron.org. So Mark chapter 14, beginning in verse 12, and the word of the sovereign Lord reads, And on the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, Where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the city, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him, and wherever he enters, say to the master of the house, the teacher says, where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished and ready. They're prepared for us. And the disciples set out and went to the city and found it just as, they, just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. And when it was evening, he came with the twelve, and they were reclining at table and eating. Jesus said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They began to be sorrowful and say to him and to one another, Is it I? And he said to them, It is one of the twelve who is dipping bread in the dish with me. For the Son of Man goes, as it is written of him, but woe to the man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed, for it would have been better off that, that man, better off for that man if he had never have not been born. This is the word of the Lord. The late R.C. Sproul once wrote, If there is a mo- single molecule in the universe running around loose, totally free of God's sovereignty, then we have no guarantee that a single promise of God will ever be fulfilled. The Apostle Paul in Ephesians chapter number 4 draws our attention to the connection between faith and knowing God. That There's a connection between having faith in Christ and knowing God. He says in Galatians chapter 4, verse 8 and 9, I'll just read it for you. It says, Formerly, when you did not know God, because there was a time you didn't know God, you were enslaved to those that were by nature not gods. But now that you have come to know God, or rather been known by God, there's a direct connection between our faith in Christ and knowing God. The thing that we need to realize is that Christian faith is a knowing faith. It is not a blind faith. As many people who would accuse us of, it is not a blind faith. It is a faith that is built on an understanding. It is a faith built on knowledge. Christianity is about what you know and what you don't know. More specifically, who it is you know and don't know. Notice Paul said that unbelievers don't know God. They don't. They don't understand Him. They don't know what he wants. They don't know who he is and what makes him God. But he says that those who came to faith in Christ do know him and are known by him. Now, I don't have a lot of time to unpack all of this. As you all know, I have tends to go along anyway. As we've made comment this morning over coffee. Right? But the thing is, is I actually unpacked this entire section in a Friday Bible study a couple weeks ago. And if you'd like to know more about what Paul's saying here, I'd be glad to give you my notes. But what I want to emphasize is the point that Paul makes here that faith in God is about knowing Him. It's about knowing Him. And when I became a Christian, when I first became saved, I began to understand some basic things about God. I learned that God is the creator of the the universe. He created all things, including me. Right? That there is only one true God. There is no other. 
And in light of what I learned about God, then I learned about who I am, a creature made in his image, made by God, but, but distorted because of the sin that, that I have and the sin that I've been living in and the rebellion that I was in to him. I learned also what Christ has done to set me free. He lived a perfect life that I could not live, and he fulfilled the law that I personally could not fulfill. And he died in my place for a penalty that I couldn't pay in all of eternity myself. He died for me, was laid in a tomb three days later, and rose again, and now sits at the right hand of God interceding for me. And in light of that truth, I repented, I believed the gospel, and I became a brand new Christian. And, and as a true converted Christian, I began to hunger to know more and more and more about God. And very soon I learned about God's faithfulness, I learned about God's mercy, I learned about His grace, and I learned more about His promises. His promise to never leave me or forsake me. You talk about a promise that has carried me through many dark times. His promise to take care of me. His promise to work all things out for my good. His promise to rescue me from the penalty <clears throat> and the power and ultimately the presence of sin. His promise to save me from the wrath of God and give me eternal life. As I've grown in my relationship with God, I've learned more and more about Him. And there has been a direct correspondence. The more I know about God, the closer I am drawn to Him. By the way, it's, all, it's the same way for all Christians. The closer you get to God, the more you know about Him. The more you know about Him, the closer you get to Him. It is, it's immutable. And there are many things that I have, I have learned. And there are many things about God I love to think about and meditate on. I really, one of my favorite things to do is to think about who God is, like his goodness. I'm overwhelmed sometimes by his goodness. Like every single day, I'm reminding myself and trying to remind other people to be grateful because God is more, is so good to us that we can't even, we don't even know how good he is to us. We only get glimpses of it when, when things really go wrong, then we realize and put in perspective all the great days that we had. God has been amazingly good to us. I love thinking about God's goodness. I love also thinking about, about his grace. Right? I love thinking about his triune nature, this understanding that God is one in essence, in three in person, and that we can, once you understand that, you see that reflection throughout all the Bible, and you can see how that works itself out in, in, in salvation. But of all the things that I have learned about God, of all of the attributes that, that I know to be true about Him, of all the things that make God God, there's one particular truth that continues to be the rock of all my hope. I mean, if there is a truth that gives me peace, if there is a truth that carries me through the worst moments of my life, if there is a truth that gives me hope when nothing makes sense around me, it is the truth that I've anchored my soul to, the truth of God's sovereignty. The truth that in all things, that God is completely and totally in control. This is the truth that I have personally built my life on. This is the truth that I have built my ministry on. This is the truth that we have grown to embrace as a church body, as a foundational truth that we move and operate from. This is something we affirm and we've even built our entire theological understanding upon. The truth that God is sovereign over all things. There's nothing beyond his reign. There's nothing beyond his reach. We sing that song, Behold Our God. Right? You shall reign, how long? Forever, right? There is nothing beyond his control. There's nothing outside of his will. And I think R.C. Sproul says it best. If God is not sovereign over the entire created order, then he is not sovereign at all. And if God is not sovereign, he is not God. That is the truth. The truth is if there is one maverick molecule in the entire universe that is beyond his knowledge and control, he's not God. All things in heaven and on earth are under his sovereign control. The truth is we've been 
This has been a staying point for my personal life. Because I want you to understand, this is the truth. This is the truth that makes all of his promises believable. This is the truth that makes all of his promises dependable. The truth that God is completely sovereign and in control makes all of his promises real. Because if he's not sovereign, as R.C. Sproul says, then we have no guarantee that a single promise of God will ever be fulfilled. If God is not fully in control, then how can we believe that God can do the things he promised to do? I mean, I want you to think about just the one promise of Romans 8.28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. I want you to think about the depth of and the implications of that promise. That is a promise that we that you've heard me preach on multiple times. You will hear me preach on it multiple times more. I will come back to this promise over and over again. The fact that, that all things work together for those who love God and are called by God. All things work for good. Whether it's the sunshine or the rain. Whether it is harvest or famine whether it is a clear diagnosis, whether it is cancer, whether it is an accident on the road or safe travels, whether it is peace, whether it is war, no matter what life brings, the promise of God himself is all things, even the worst of things, work in concert. You understand that? They work in concert together for the good of those who are trusting in him and believing in him. In fact, most translations explicitly say God is the one who works those things out and controls and shapes the things that benefit us and work out for our good. That is the promise of God, one that we depend on. I want you to think about of all the things that happen in the world around us, the billions of free choices and the billions of of variables that happen. But But hear what I'm saying here. If God is not sovereign... And if there's anything outside of his control, then that promise at best is a wish. It's an educated guess. It might come true for some, but it won't come true for others. If God is not sovereign, then his promise is not true. It's only good intentions. But God is sovereign. And I stake my hope in that truth The fact that God is in control, that God can do all that he's promised to do. Church family, hear me on this. The reason why you can depend on God to do what God has promised to do, whether it is to work things out for your good, whether it's to always be with you, or to, to finish the work that he's begun in you, or to take you home when you step across into eternity, is simply because he is in control. He reigns with complete supremacy. He's totally sovereign. That means nothing surprises him. That means nothing is outside of his will. There's nothing that can thwart his plans. There's nothing in all creation that's beyond his complete control. These are the anchors of the Christian faith, the anchors of our collective faith. Whether we believe them or not, you can hope in Christ because God is sovereign. Now, I mentioned this at the outset of this sermon because if there is a truth that many people still struggle with in our individualistic culture today, if there's anything that people wrestle with in our self-autonomous world, it's this one. The truth that God being in control, God being completely sovereign, if there's anything that rubs people the wrong way, it is this one. And it has been like this for many, many years. In fact, the 19th century preacher Charles Spurgeon once wrote, no doctrine in the whole world, I mean, excuse me, no doctrine in the whole word of God has more excited the hatred of mankind than the truth of the absolute sovereignty of God. Many people struggle to accept this truth. And the the reason why so many people struggle with it is, is the perceived problem of God's sovereignty in man's free will. Man's ultimate accountability to God. The argument is if God is sovereign, then how can man have free will? If God is sovereign and in control, right, then, then how is man free to choose? 
Because if mankind doesn't have the ability to choose, then how can he be responsible for his choices? And how can he be responsible for his sin? That is the issue that people put forth. For many, the problems, that's the problem of the sovereignty of God. They believe ultimately that man doesn't have free will if God is in control. In fact, that's what the atheists believe. They believe that as the proof of why God can't possibly exist. John Paul Sartre said that if there is a God, man is not free. If man is truly free, then there is no God. That is his proof. But this kind of thinking stands in opposition to what the Bible actually teaches. Because the Bible teaches that God completely in control, but at the same time, man is certainly accountable for his choices and his sins. In fact, that's the very thing that we're going to see in this text today. This is the, the truth that you cannot escape and avoid if you read this text. The fact that God is in control and man is responsible for what he does. And so I'm just going to lay out my cards right from the beginning of this message, and I'm going to tell you the point of this text. This passage is going to make clear that both of these things are true, that God is sovereign over all things, and man is responsible for his own free choices. And there is no contradiction in those things, as many people suppose. In fact, turn with me to Mark chapter 14, and we'll begin to kind of like unpack this. Beginning in verse 12. And on the first day of unleavened bread, they sacrificed the Passover lamb. His disciples said to him, where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? So what we need to realize is contextually, this is Thursday of Passion Week, right? And this is the day of preparation for the Passover meal. And, and, and they asked Jesus where they want for him to set up to eat the Passover. Because what you have to realize, it wasn't a question as if maybe they would. It is, it is when would they or where would they? Because that's why they were in Jerusalem anyway. That's why Jerusalem had thousands of more pilgrims there. That's why the nation of Israel had descended upon this city. This observance of Passover, this was a part of Jewish life. It was not optional. This was required. And so it wasn't a matter of if they were going to eat. It's where were they going to eat. Now, notice how Jesus responds. It says... And he sent two of his disciples, they were probably Peter and John, and he said to them, go into the city and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. And what we need to realize when we read that in English, there's actually a point that we're missing here. This is an unusual sight because, because men typically didn't carry jars of water. That was not their job. This is what women did. Right? And so what Jesus is saying is you're looking not just for somebody carrying a jar of water, you're looking for something very specific and unusual. Right? A man carrying a jar of water. And then he says, follow him. And wherever he enters, say to the master of the house, not the one carrying the water, but the actual master of the house, the teacher says, where is my guest room? Where may I eat the Passover with my disciples? Now I want you to think about what's happening here in this, this text. They were asking, you know, where do we go to get Passover? And he says, just go into town. You're going to see something you've never seen before. A guy carrying water. Follow him. Don't ask questions. Just follow him into the house. And then ask the master of the house. And he's not going to kick you out. right? You just tell, ask him, where can we set up to eat the Passover? Seems like a really odd errand. right? Again, one that I would be really uncomfortable with. Because I'm like, there's too many questions that I, that I wouldn't have answers to. But Jesus says, do that. And then it says, and he will show you a large upper room furnished and ready. They're prepared for us. That it's going to be ready for us. And then in, in verse 16, it says, and the disciples set out and went in the city and found it just as he had told them. And they prepared the Passover. Now, as we think about the disciples going to find this place and prepare the Passover, and then as we who know more of the story, internally look ahead to what we already know is going to be the last supper for Christ, the meal by which he will institute the ordinance of the Lord's table, one of two ordinances in the church, right? This foundational move, moment in, in Christianity and church life is about to happen. With all of that on our minds, it's easy for us to overlook another important detail that's taking place right here in the way that Jesus does this. 
The way that this is taking place is important. In fact, it tells them, when he tells them to go into the city and, and find someone they'd never met, right? And he tells them what to say, and his disciples you know, find exactly what he described. The reason why this is important is this is not the first time that this kind of an event has happened. In fact, turn with me to Mark chapter 11. This is a couple chapters back. Mark chapter 11, we're going to look at verse 1 through 6. It says, Now when they drew near to Jerusalem at, to Bethpage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go to the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied in which no one had ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone asks you, What are you doing? Say, The Lord has need of it and will send it back immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, What are you doing untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus had said, and they let them go. You see, this section in Jerusalem begins with a similar experience. Jesus sending his disciples, two of his disciples specifically, to make preparations for something, right? And Jesus is telling them, about things that they've never seen, and he's telling them what to say, and they find exactly what he describes, and it happens exactly like he says. What you need to realize, this is another example of Mark's bookend. This is a theme as we have gone through over and over again. We've seen it throughout Mark. Mark begins this section with, the, with, with an event, and then he wraps up this section with a similar event. We talked about last week how we see, we see this throughout Mark, and the clearest example of this was how Jesus he, healed two different blind men, right? And the, in, in the intervening text was about spiritual blindness. Well, we see this theme repeated here again. Jesus sends his disciples on an errand to make preparation for him, which means everything in between these two ends really has great thematic significance, right? What? It has what is what is the significance of, of this section then? If you think about everything that's transpired, the significance of this section is the sovereignty of Christ. I mean, think about what we've seen in the last few chapters of Passion Week. Jesus in this text predicts with accuracy exactly what to find and what he needs to accomplish his task, and, and, and knows all of the circumstances, knows all the circumstances that surround them. And it's not like that he actually went and made arrangements because the text, none of the text has anything to do with that. He's with his disciples. He knows all these things in his divinity and is completely omniscient. Right? He is, as Mark has been demonstrating from, from chapter 1, verse 1 of Mark, that he is God in the flesh. And notice Jesus rides into Jerusalem in the beginning of this section on the back of a donkey as the Messiah and the reigning king. I know that we talk a lot about him being a Messiah, but this was also a picture of him being the king. Remember, riding on the donkey was an allusion to the coronation of King Solomon. Jesus rode in as the king, and as the king, he came, comes in and he pronounces judgment upon the nation of Israel and the leaders of Israel. And what we see is he, he mightily reigns, declaring his judgment upon his people. This is a picture of his sovereignty. And then he predicts with absolute accuracy his second coming and the destruction of the city of Jerusalem and the temple. Right? And then we see a woman taking $30,000 worth of perfume and pouring it out on him in an act of worship, demonstrating that he is completely worthy of her worship. I mean, look at the picture that's being painted here about Christ in this section. Like, and what we need to realize is until this moment, the triumphal entry, what was the focus of Christ's ministry? Remember, the demons try to say that he's the son of God and tells him to shut up. Right? He heals people and he says, don't tell anybody. Right? Jesus' ministry was about the work that he was doing and the gospel he was preaching, but he was always pushing off the emphasis on him. We see that. 
But then he rides triumphantly into Jerusalem and the city is electric and what we see is that he is being worshipped and we see that he has authority and power and he displays his omniscience. We see that he is the regal royal Messiah, the king, the sovereign reigning king. These bookends serve to remind us of that, that he is God incarnate. Now we know that after this point in the story, Things are going to change as they accelerate towards the cross. We know that he's going to be betrayed. We know that he's going to be arrested and he's going to be crucified. And so here we are, as we see here again, this theme of Christ's supremacy and sovereignty. That's what's been building up to this moment. And so to understand this text and what's happening here, you're going to miss a lot if you don't hold that in your mind, what's been the picture that's being painted at this point. Christ is supreme and sovereign, which then sets up the rest of this encounter, by the way. You see, the, the point that God, the point is that God is in control. And the details of his have been sovereignly prepared beforehand. Christ is in control, right? of when he announced himself. He was in control of how and when he came into the city that led up to him. He was in control when he argued against all of those that came to argue against him, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the Herodians. They couldn't even lay a finger on him because he was completely in control. He was so much in control that he sent his disciples on a specific errand that proved that he was still in control. Christ is demonstrating his total sovereignty and control. Jesus says, go into the city and find what we need to prepare for dinner. And they find exactly that because Jesus is sovereign and he arranged all these things to take place. All of these things are happening by his will. And then in verse 17 it says, and then was evening, he came with the twelve, and they were reclining at table eating. And Jesus said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me, one of you eating with me. I don't know about you, but you know how sometimes there are just certain times to have conversations about things and there are other times that you shouldn't have conversations? This seems like to me like a really bad time to have this conversation. Everybody's, it's a peaceful meal, right? This is the Passover, right? This is the time of year when people are close together. They're, they're thinking about their history. They're thinking about the promises of God. They're thinking about Egypt and, and, and the Exodus and the first Passover. And then Jesus announces to them in this moment, a really serene, peaceful moment, that one of them is going to betray him. Have you ever been in a situation like that where things, you know, you're having dinner and things good and everybody's happy and somebody says the wrong thing and next thing you know, like tension just fills the room and everybody's irritated and upset, right? Yeah, it sounds like Thanksgiving at some people's house all the time, right? Yeah. Certain uncles come by and they start talking about politics and, you know, right? This, this moment for these, this was not like he just dropped it and then just let it hang there. He said it and this was very dismaying and shocking to these men. This upset these men. In fact, notice what it says. They begin to be sorrowful and say to him, one after another, is it I? Like, they're like, is it me? And what you need to realize is that J Judas in this moment knows that it's him. Right? Because why? He just made the arrangements to, to betray Jesus beforehand. But the other disciples, the other 11, they are baffled by this. This, this really just this caught them by complete surprise. In fact, the reaction of the apostles is very telling because they legitimately did not know that this was going to happen. Remember, they have believed and still believe that Christ is the king of Israel and that he's, go he's going to ascend to David's throne and they're going to be VIPs. They honestly didn't know that one of their own was about to be a turncoat. They're like, who could possibly do this? But Which tells us a couple of important things, by the way. Number one, Judas' attitude towards Christ and his attitude towards the mission and towards the others was not so odd that they even picked up on it. Because they didn't think, hey, who's going to betray Jesus? Oh, it's him. They didn't even know. They didn't notice that he was turning on them. They legitimately didn't see it because he was one of them. You see, we read the story and we know 
already from the beginning that he's dirty. In fact, it's said early on in Mark that he's going to betray Jesus. We know who he is. We know that he's the villain. Right? But that's because we know the story. There was nothing in his behavior. If you were there, you wouldn't know. I just want you to know that. If you were there with him, you wouldn't know. There was nothing in his behavior that, that made them think that there was something wrong with him. Because he was just like them. They honestly didn't see anything right, wrong with his personality. He was a brother with them. He did miracles with him, by the way. And he'd been one of the people that was there from the beginning. His betrayal was not an obvious conclusion for them to come to. You're, I don't know if you realize it, but a lot of your kids play this game. What's, what's the name of that game? Uh, the imposter game? Huh? What? Among Us, yes. Yeah, it's that entire story right there. It's the kids are trying to figure out who the imposter is, and they get it wrong all the time. Well, they had no idea who the imposter was. And the second thing I want you to notice is the question, is it I? These guys are like, wait a minute. Is it me? Am I capable of this? I mean, I know I don't always do the right thing, but could I do something really that wrong? Because they couldn't imagine any of the other apostles doing this. It just seems such an impossible thing. And what this tells us was that the knowledge of Judas was going to betray Jesus was not something that they could have picked up on. This was not something that they would have known by human insight. This was, this was not something that anybody close to them would, would see. No mere human being was going to be able to know what was going to happen. It would took supernatural insights. It took divine insight to see this. The only people that knew were Judas and the high priests and obviously Jesus. And that's what we see again. He is omniscient as God. He knows something is going, someone's going to betray him, right? And he's always known it. But then look at verse 20. It says, And he said to them, One of the twelve who is dipping bread into the dish with me. I want you to notice that Mark is not saying that, that Judas was in that moment dipping his bread in the dish, okay? Because this statement was not meant to identify a person. This statement is meant to communicate something more devastating than that. It was, it was meant to communicate and express the closeness of his betrayer. You see, it was one thing to know who Jesus was. It was another thing to be close enough for Jesus to touch you and heal you. It's another for you to be a disciple because there were lots of disciples of Jesus at that time. Lots of people followed him around. But it was a whole other thing to be somebody that was one of the 12, one of his closest companions. And the table fellowship he's having here is, is a display of clear intimacy. These men are sharing a loaf of bread together and they're dipping like their bread in the same cup of sauce. Right? You just don't sit down and share chips and salsa with strangers. You know what I mean? Like the people that you sit down at the table with and you share the cup with. That's closeness, especially in that culture. Jesus was going to be, I want you to hear me. Jesus was about to be betrayed by one of his best friends. That's the emphasis of this point right here. He was going to be betrayed by one of his best friends. Let that just sink into your heart for a minute. It wasn't some stranger off the street. It wasn't some person who kind of got to know Jesus and worked his way in. This was one of his best friends. This man had been called by Christ to follow him. This man was with him for three and a half years. This man had been on the boat when Jesus calmed the storm twice. This man was there when he fed 5,000 people. And he was there again when he fed 4,000 more people. This man has eaten countless meals with Jesus. Think about the closeness and all the laughs and the discussions that happen over, the, over those meals. He slept under the same roof night after night. He listened to almost every sermon and he witnessed firsthand a mind-blowing miracles. He probably even asked a thousand of his own questions. And he was even endowed by, by, by Christ with the power to cast out demons and heal people like the other apostles when he sent them out. Right? we got to stop thinking of him as the movie villain that we've painted him to be. He's not the stereotypical bad guy. He was one of Jesus' closest friends. You see, the problem that we have is we already know what's going to happen and what he's going to do. We already know 
that he's going to do one of the most horrific things in all of history. He's going to betray the Son of the living God to his doom. And the reason why this is a problem is that knowledge prevents us from seeing that Judas is actually just like the rest of the disciples. That's why they can't see it. He's just like them. In fact, every one of them, if you know the story, every one of them in their own way will ultimately betray Christ too. You do realize that, right? I mean, Peter is going to deny verbally three times with curses that even knows who Christ is. We want to look at Judas as if there's something extraordinarily wrong with him, that there's something wrong with his character that, doesn't, that's not, that he doesn't have in common with other people. What we, what we want to think about is there's something broken in him so deep that it couldn't possibly be broken in us. But there's not. He's just like the rest of them. And here's the truth. He's just like the rest of you. He's just like me. He's a fallen, broken sinner. Like us. So we need to be careful how we sit in judgment of this man. We need to be careful not to become self-righteous, thinking that we were not capable of what he did. Before Christ, we were more capable of that than you could possibly even imagine. I mean, think about this. Who have you betrayed in your lifetime? You just meditate on that for a minute. Who have you turned your back on? Who have you mistreated? Who have you failed? Who have you taken advantage of? I mean, we've all, every one of us done these kinds of things. We need to be real careful. We're not as different from Judas as we might think. We can't stand here saying that given the same exact circumstances that we, that we wouldn't do what he did. The honest, the honest truth is we can't say that. We can't say it. The unregenerate heart is capable of horrific things. It's only by the grace of God that the others didn't do this. It's only by the grace of God that he preserved them. It is by the grace of God that they didn't do worse. It's by the grace of God that you haven't done worse things than you've done in your life. You see, this, what this reveals is Judas is, is simply who he is. A fallen, broken sinner And God has been using who Jesus is to accomplish his plan of redemption. God didn't have to make him like this. He was already like this. And this is where we get to the heart of the issue here. This is where we get to the the thrust. Mark 14, 20 uh, through 21. Or actually, Mark 21. 14, 21. For the Son of Man goes as is written of him. I'm going to say that again. For the Son of Man goes as it is written of him. But woe to the man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would be better for that man if he had not been born. In this one statement, we hear the voice of the Lord thundering and declaring this immutable truth. God is supremely sovereign and mankind is still responsible for his sin. Notice what it says, for the Son of Man goes as written of him. Jesus' sacrifice and atoning death were written about in the Old Testament. What Jesus is saying is his betrayal and death on the cross is foreordained. It is already planned by God, that God has ordained beforehand that this would happen, that this is the will of God, that this will absolutely take place. This is the plan that the Son of Man would be betrayed. Understand this, this plan for Christ to suffer and die for the sins of his people, right, is not plan B because the Jews rejected him as the Messiah. This is not the afterthought of something that went wrong with God's plan. 
This plan for Jesus to be betrayed is one by one of his friends so that he could be crucified and make atonement for those who would have faith in him is not a plan that was conceived and developed after Adam and Eve fell in the garden. Many people kind of think in those terms that man fell and then God then had to come up with a new plan. No, this has always been the plan. All the way to eternity past, this has been a plan. This plan is part of the covenant of redemption, a covenant that God has created within himself, that God the Father decreed a plan to redeem his people. And God the Son agreed to be the means by which they would be redeemed. He agreed to be the substitutionary atonement that would pay their debts, and then he would grant them their righteousness by faith so they could be saved. And God the Father then promised him these people to be his bride. And then God the Holy Spirit agreed to be the the one, the means by which the redemption is applied to his people. That the Holy Spirit is the one that changes our hearts. The Holy Spirit is the one who draws us to Christ. That the Holy Spirit is the one who leads us and guides us and indwells us and, and draws us to righteousness and conforming us into the image of the Son. This was the covenant that God had created with himself Before creation even began, this has always been the plan. And we see the promise of this plan very early in Genesis. Genesis chapter 3, where God said that the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. That was the very beginning of the promise that they would look forward to in hope. And we see this plan being worked out through redemptive history. We see the shadow of this plan when God told Abraham to go up on Mount Moriah and kill his own son. Remember that story, right? We see the shadow of this plan with the nation of Israel being rescued from the bondage of Egypt. We see the shadow of this plan in the sacrificial system. We see the shadow of this plan when God brings Israel into the promised land. This is the plan that God has ordained in eternity past. And this is a plan that he's been working out through all of redemptive history, pointing forward to Christ. And we see the shadows of this. Every little detail of this plan has been foreordained by God, including using Judas to betray Jesus including using the Sanhedrin to pronounce judgment upon him, including using the Romans to put nails in his hands. Everyone. God is completely in control of history, and this event happening, it's happening exactly how God ordained for it to happen. And that's what we see here, is God is completely and totally sovereign. Right? This is the truth that we see over and over and over again, not just through Mark, but through all of the scriptures. If there's a theme that Mark repeats and the scriptures repeat is the fact that God is in control and that Jesus is God in the flesh. It's crystal clear by the text that God ordained for this to happen this way. But then notice it also says, but woe to the man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would be better for that man than if he'd never been born. Why? Because ultimately he's responsible for his own actions and his own sin. He's going to be punished for his own sin. He's going to be punished severely for his own sin. So much so that it would have been better for him to never exist, much less be born and then spend eternity in hell paying for that sin. And this is a part of what some people really get tripped up over. Jesus saying Judas is going to pay dearly for his sin, even though God, even though Jesus said God ordained for this to happen. Judas is going to be held responsible for his choices, even though God is going to use his choices for his purpose. And this has been planned since eternity past. Judas is still responsible, accountable God for his own actions. That's what the text makes clear. Judas is personally responsible for his own sin. Now, I've heard people ask, how is that even possible? How does that make any sense? If God ordained this to happen, then how is Judas not simply a mindless pawn or a robot in the divine scheme that God was working throughout history? It seems that Judas really had no choice. That's how people see this. Some people do. Because if God is completely sovereign and in control, then Judas really isn't free to choose, right? Well, that actually is the heart of the issue of what makes this difficult. 
is that the Bible teaches just that. The real problem actually isn't not what the Bible says, but it, the real problem I think we have is how we define and understand man's free will. Uh, there's the problem. You see, we live in a time and a culture where we're very individualistic. We know that, right? We don't have, it doesn't take very long to look outside and just see how things are, that people are very individualistic, right? And, and there's this also this sense that each individual is a kind of disconnected island unto himself, that people kind of live their own bubbles and are allowed to do whatever they want to do because it's them, right? They believe that, that individuals not only have free will, but that individuals have autonomous free will. And this is important, right? Because this is the perspective of mankind that has been adopted by our culture, right? That, that what they believe is that, that, that if, if, if a person doesn't have autonomous free will, then they don't really have free will. Now, we hear this word autonomous, again, throughout our culture. This is a, this is a buzzword used all around us. Right, they'll say, that person has autonomy, I have autonomy. In fact, part of uh, Ruth Ginsburg's argument for abortion was a woman's bodily autonomy. That's how she worded it. It's this idea that we are autonomous creatures. Our cultures embrace the idea that mankind is not just endowed, endowed with free will, but autonomous free will. And this kind of thinking has actually affected the church itself. This is why when you hear well-meaning Christians who try to make sense of what the Bible teaches, they'll say, yeah, God is sovereign, right? But his sovereignty is limited by man's autonomy. What? Yeah, God's in control, but God's control is limited by man's free will. Brothers and sisters, that point of view is not only an error, that point of view is actually blasphemous. Because if God's sovereignty and control is limited by your autonomy and free will, then God is not sovereign, you are. That's dangerous territory, but, you, but I want you to listen. When you hear people talk, other Christians talk, that's the kind of language they use. You see, the problem is the word autonomous. Most people don't understand what this word actually means. Autonomous is a root word, nomos, with the prefix auto. Autonomos is how the words are put together. Auto means self. So we know what auto is, right? Automobile, right? An, some, a self-driving or self-moving machine, right? Auto means self, and nomos means law. So in other words, to be autonomous means to be a self-law or to be self-governing or self-ruling. The idea to be autonomous means that there is nothing outside of yourself that has any rule over you. That's what people say when they are autonomous. You can't tell me what to do. I'm autonomous. right? There, that there's nothing that has any control over me. That's what it means to be autonomous. And the idea is that if man does not have autonomous free will, that if they're not subject to outside, if they're, if they're subject to any outside influences at all, right, then... They're not really free. It's a contradiction in terms. Because, but think about this. Autonomous free will of humans is an impossibility. I want you to hear me. Autonomous free will of human beings is impossible. Do you know why? Because all of your choices are limited by something. There's something in your life that is controlling your free will. There are just some choices you do not have the power to make. For example, if I had true autonomous free will, then I could choose right now this morning to be the starting linebacker for the Indianapolis Colts if I had true autonomous free will. But that's quite impossible. Do you know why? There are things outside of my control that limit my ability to make that decision. Like the fact that I'm probably a little too old for that. Probably a little too beat up for that. Definitely too slow. I right? was never, never a fast guy. Right? Right? And I'm also limited by the fact that the, the, the Indianapolis Colts have never actually expressed an interest to have a relationship with me at all, much less being a football player. Right? 
But if I was autonomous and had autonomous free will, I could just go to the locker room, sit down, get dressed, and go play the game, and no one would stop me. And so I do not possess within me autonomous free will. My free will is limited by external factors. So you understand God's sovereignty is not limited by your autonomy. Our autonomy is limited by his sovereignty. In fact, let me put it this way. God is a being, and you're a being. The difference between that, the two beings is you're a human being, and God is what we say the supreme being. You certainly have free will. God has free will. But whose free will is greater? I mean, that's really the truth, right? It's not as complicated as people want to make it seem. God's free will is greater than your free will. You are made in his image. Not the other way around. Your freedom is a reflection of his freedom. Right? Your ability to love is a reflection of his love. Your ability to create is a reflection of his creativity. He is the ultimate expression of whatever you possess. If you have free will, he has ultimate free will. We need to understand that mankind's free will is a real thing. There are people who accuse someone like me who, who embraces Reformed theology and says, you don't believe man has free will. I don't believe that at all. I believe he has free will. Man does have free will. But man's free will is never unlimited free will. There have always been man's, limited to man's freedom. I mean, even, if you, you know, even when things were perfect, if you remember, when things were awesome in the way they should be, God still limited their freedom. God said, you can eat of everything in this garden that you want to, but not that. They were free to choose whatever they wanted to do within the garden. There was no other rules except that one. There's still a limit to their freedom. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And God said, if you eat it, you're going to die. So God never endowed mankind with autonomous free will. Our free will is always limited in some fashion. Not only is it limited by God's sovereignty, it's also limited by our physical abilities and our location and our knowledge and our resources and our friends and our families and our opportunities and the laws that we live under. And even our own nature, which is probably one of the most important things for the Christian to come to terms with, our own nature limits our free will. Our free will is limited by our own nature. That's why God changing our hearts and giving us a new nature is essential for us coming to faith in Him because we, by our nature before Christ, we didn't want Him. The Bible says that we were by nature children of wrath, that we were dead spiritually in our sin. The Bible says is that no one in their old nature desires God. Paul doesn't leave any room for doubt. He says in Romans chapter 3, beginning in verse 10, no one is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. In our old nature, we did what we wanted to do. Nobody made us. We sinned because we wanted to sin. We rebelled against God because we wanted to rebel against God. We lived the way that we wanted to live. We exercised what we thought to be our autonomous free will, and we lived within that nature, but still limited by it. That's who we were. That's why Jesus says, if, you entered, if you're going to enter the kingdom of God, what happens? What must happen? You must be what? Born again, radically transformed. You must have a new nature. In fact, what the Bible says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, Paul tells us, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a what? New creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Only when we have a new nature given to us by God can we freely choose God. So you see, the idea of autonomous free will is a myth and a delusion held on by people who push back against God's control. So hear me. Does mankind have free will? Yes. He has the freedom to choose. And he chooses everything he wants to choose. Every choice you make, by the way, is the one you want to make. And some people say, wait a minute, I've made choices I didn't want to. No, you've always made the choice you want to make. You might have only had limited choices because of circumstances, but you still choose what you want. right? Like the, the old comedian uh, that said, 
you know, the guy shows up on the stage and says, your money, your life? And he says, come on. Well, give me a second, right? I mean, I'm thinking, right? And the point is, even though it's funny, is that neither one of those were things that he really wanted, but he still had to choose the outcome. And whatever he chose was still to choose the choice that he that ultimately he wanted. It might not have been the best of best of choices, but he still chose what he wants, chooses what he wants, and we are the same. Mankind has free will, and the choices, we make choices all the time, but our freedom has limits, and the greatest limit that we have is the sovereignty of God. There are going to be things that God simply will not allow me to do because it's not in his will for me to do it. Right? There are going to be things that I don't even know that I really wish I could do that God's just not going to allow me to do because it's not within his sovereign will to, to let me do it. And so is God completely sovereign? Yes, he's in control. And there's nothing that limits him, nothing that prevents him from accomplishing his will. And because of that, we know then his promises are sure. That's the point. Because he is sovereign, we know that his promises are sure. You see, mankind can make all the promises that he wants, but none of anybody's promises, not even the best intention, not even the best resource person, nobody's promises are ultimately a guarantee. None. Right? Because they're not sovereign. But God's promises are guaranteed because he is. He is sovereign and in control. Now with all of that, then, now that we've kind of, can we say we put that to rest? that we, we, we believe what the Bible teaches, that we do have the ability to choose and we're responsible for our choices, but God ultimately is, in so, is sovereign and in control. Now that we know that, right, what do we, how do we understand what's happening in this text? What we understand is this, Judas is a man just like all other men around him, and he grew up as a Jew, endowed with the, with the free ability to make choices, and he probably made millions of choices that led him to where he was in that very moment. And all of these free choices made by him are sovereignly used by God in his divine plan to accomplish his will. We see God in his wisdom exercising his ability to choose in such a way that doesn't alienate, excuse me, annihilate the choice of his free creatures. I want to understand that that's the, that's the doctrine of, of, course, of correspondence. Oh no, doctrine of, of, of concurrence, forgive me. The doctrine of concurrence, that God can concurrently choose the same as the human can choose and God can work all of that out according to his will in such a way that a human being still actually chooses freely. Again, it's, there's a lot to that because we're not God, but understand that ultimately mankind is responsible for his own evil, but God still can take that and use it for good. And so Judas is where he is in the moment because that's where he wants to be. He freely chose to follow Christ in the ministry. He freely chose to stay with Jesus for three and a half years. He freely chose to cast out demons and heal people and as Jesus commissioned him. And he freely ch chose to betray Jesus to the, the chief priest. And now he's freely choosing to have a meal with Jesus, pretending like nothing's wrong. He's freely choosing to deceive his his apostle brothers, because that's what he wants to do. But God in his sovereignty is choosing to use Judas's choices and his evil deeds to accomplish his plan of redemption. You see, God can truly work all things out for good for those who love him, even the worst of things. And I want you to understand the worst thing that has ever happened in the universe is the innocent, spotless son of God to be betrayed by one of his best friends, arrested by his own countrymen, accused of blasphemy against God by his fellow Jews, beaten by and punished the Romans for no reason, and then hung on a cross to endure the wrath of God, the wrath of God the Father for the penalty of sins. They're not his own. That's the greatest tragedy in all of human history. That's the worst possible thing that could have ever happened. The greatest crime committed in all of history was the result of free creatures all doing the things that they wanted to do, making choices that they wanted to make. Free creatures acting out of their own free will. Free creatures choosing to do what their own desires and what their own natures guided them to do. 
And all of this was sovereignly ordained by God as part of a plan that will work out in order to bring the greatest possible good to his people, the redemption of his people from their sins. You see, you can truly trust God to keep his promises because even when all of the worst in the world happens, he's still able to keep them because he's sovereign. So what do we do with this? I have three things I'm going to share with you before we go. First of all, I think what we need is just we need to accept the truth. And the truth that we need to accept is that we're responsible for our own actions. I think that there's sometimes a sense of us that there's that we are living the life that we live and that ultimately it's because of somebody else that we were where we are or because of circumstances that sometimes we, in a sense, want to become a little bit superstitious and say that we're not really responsible for the current place that we are in our lives. What I want you to realize is every one of us, every single one of us, for good or for ill, are in the position we're in because of the choices that we have made. Yes, there are circumstances that have influenced us. There are bad things that have happened. There are also good things that have happened. There are people that have done things to us. There are people, they're, 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 like COVID-19, nobody predicted any of that, right? But still, ultimately, the life that we live is the result of the choices that we make. We need to accept responsibility for our choices because God's going to hold us responsible for them. We're responsible for what we do. That's why the admonition is, is for us to, uh, to be responsible with the time we're given that's so why the admonition is for us to be responsible to go out and share the hope of Christ. Ultimately, we make the decisions that we need to make. Number two, we need to understand that the difference between Judas and Peter is ultimately the grace of God. This is something that some people really struggle with, but if you embrace this, it'll set you free. It'll set your mind free. It'll set your heart free. It'll set your, your evangelism free, right? The difference between Judas and Peter is the grace of God. The difference between Judas and Paul, who was the person who killed Christians, is ultimately the grace of God. God changed Peter's heart. God changed Paul's heart. God didn't change Judas's heart. And people were, I can hear it already. That's just not fair. Why? That's not unfair. I even heard someone say, I could never worship a God like that. Of course you can't, unless he opens your heart to worship him. God allowed Judas to be judged for his own free decisions. God allowed Judas to get what he deserved, but God in his mercy, by the counsel of his own will, had mercy on Paul and Peter. Mercy that they didn't deserve. They didn't do anything to, to, to merit it. You understand that, right? It wasn't like that they were good guys. It's just God had grace for them. You see, what, what was fair, if you want to talk about fairness, what would have been fair is God would just send everybody to hell, right? That he would have just let all of them <clears throat> go the way of hell. That's fair. But what happens is when we object to this, when we object to God being gracious to, to those that he chooses to be gracious to, we're saying that if God is gracious to one person, then he has to be gracious to everyone else, which then that means grace no longer is a free gift, but an obligation <clears throat> it's something that God owes us. And if it's something God owes us, then it's a wage, not, not grace. Right? God's grace is a gift to whomever he wants to give. The only thing that God owes anybody is his wrath and his judgment. So before we say we want fairness, right? What, what we need to be saying is praise the Lord for your grace and that you're not always you know, judging the way we think for, is fair. We need to just rest in the fact that the difference between Judas and Peter is the grace of God. And the difference between you and Judas is the grace of God. That somehow, some way, that you were here because God pierced your heart and you heard the gospel and you repented and believed and now your hope is in him. And there are people out there who were just as close to you that, that, that have heard the same message that just will not repent and believe. They will not turn. Right? As we say over and over again, our job is to, to sow the seed, to love the people, and pray what? That God changes their hearts right? and not ever give up on them. So that's two. Number three is we need to rest in God's sovereignty. We need to rest in the truth that God's in control. If there is anything that will give you 
the peace to be able to go to sleep at night when all things are wrong, if there is anything that will give you the ability to let go and allow God to work in your life, if there's anything that will give you hope in the darkest part of the world is resting in the truth that God is fully in control And if you belong to him, he's going to work this out in all things out for your good. That he's capable, because he is sovereign, to keep his promises. Which means you can always, always, always trust him. And what I want you to realize is God has promised, for those maybe who might not have heard this, God has promised if you come to faith in him and repentance, you will be saved. That if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is the Lord and you believe in your heart the true historical truth that the Father, that God the Father raised God the Son from the dead, that you will be saved. That you will be part of God's family in the moment that you believe. And the moment you believe that you will have eternal life. This is the immutable promise of God. A promise that you can absolutely trust with certainty because God is sovereign in control. And that's my heart. If you're somebody here that is not trusted in Christ before, but you understand, you hear your need for him, that you realize you're a lost, broken sinner, and that you realize that there's a free offer of his grace to you, if you'd repent and believe the gospel, my encouragement is that you would repent and believe today. Don't wait. Tomorrow is not guaranteed. Was we know that we've lost someone dear to us that was very young like that. Tomorrow is not guaranteed. Repent and believe today. And if you want to know more about how you can do that, come see me afterwards. But also, likewise, brothers and sisters who are in the faith, as you work and as you live and you experience the challenges in your life, and as you fall down and make a mess of things and you realize that you're still battling the same sin you were battling for the last 15 years, and as you continue to struggle with whether or not you, that God even loves you, remember your your performance is not an indication of his grace. The indication of his grace is his promise to you that if you repent and believe the gospel, then you'll be saved. And so we continually walk in that same thing, continually repenting, continually believing, always trusting, always holding on to Christ because he alone is our hope. And then lastly, brothers and sisters, the world needs to hear this truth your friends, your family, your neighbors, the person who, who elicits road rage in you when, you when you drive, when they cut you off in traffic, all of these people need to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. Go out in the world and share it with them. Let me pray for you. You've been listening to the preaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead, a production of First Baptist Church in Boron, California. Our website address is fbcboron.org. And would you please consider partnering with us financially as we work to share the hope and the gospel of Jesus Christ with our community and our world.